Today on the program, emerging pathogens. But before we begin, what is a pathogen and why should we care? A pathogen is any microorganism, such as a bacteria or a virus, that causes disease. Pathogens include things like the flu virus, HIV, Staph aureus, measles, and Ebola. These viruses and bacteria cause direct damage to our body and can also cause our body to inflict damage on itself. Disease caused by pathogens can vary from a simple cold or stomach ache to coma and death. And the severity of disease depends on what the pathogen is and how the body reacts. Some pathogens have been around for nearly all of human history, but some seem to come out of nowhere and surprise the world. Currently, Zika virus, which causes mild disease in adults but severe brain damage in newborns, is wreaking havoc in parts of the globe with mosquitoes. You may remember Ebola last year, MERS and SARS before that, and HIV long before that. When these new pathogens emerge and cause disease, we call them emerging pathogens. While Zika virus is a problem at the moment, you can be assured that more emerging pathogens will arise in the future, which can make these diseases that we have no experience with very scary. Luckily, there are scientists and physicians working hard to quickly understand and treat the pathogens when they arise. But how do they do it? How do these scientists and physicians identify, treat, and prevent disease caused by emerging pathogens like Zika virus? Today, we sit down with Dr. James Crow. I'm James Crow. I'm director of the Vanderbilt Vaccine Center, professor. My background's in pediatrics, but also microbiology and immunology. Dr. Crow is a leading expert on emerging pathogens and has recently published the first potential treatment for Zika virus. It's those like Dr. Crow that keep us safe from the wild and random microbiological world. Dr. Crow and I sat down to talk about how scientists and doctors deal with pathogens and disease that seem to come out of thin air. Stay tuned. So today we're talking about emergent pathogens or pathogens that seem to pop out of nowhere and start infecting humans. So what is an emergent pathogen? Well, I think that the definition of what is emerging partly is um, related to who you are and how you see things. So a lot of people in the United States, for instance, would think of dengue virus as an emerging pathogen. So if you go traveling, we don't really have dengue in the United States, but if you go traveling and you get infected with a virus you're not aware of, it seems very exotic. Uh, well, at the same time, about 400 million people in the world get infected with dengue every year in more countries than uh, malaria exists. So if you're in, an, in a country where uh, a particular infection is endemic, then it's very common. But if you're in a place where it's not occurring, it seems emerging to you. So a lot of the things that people call emerging are not really emerging. They've been present in places of the world, but they're moving to new places. But then you have other viruses that really have not been in humans at all, and there have been no human cases or very limited, and we start seeing cases, and, and, and um, they're often coming from animals, and uh, these are the ones that uh, we've read about most recently, Ebola, mm -hmm. chikungunya, Zika. Uh, so I think emerging really means coming to your awareness and coming to your country, in some cases right. coming completely out of another species. So it depends on your experience, I think, what emerging really means. Okay. What causes uh, these pathogens to make that jump from 
obscurity to well-known, such as Ebola or, or Zika virus? Well, in some cases, uh, these viruses are fully capable of replicating in humans and often causing severe disease, but we're just not around the animals enough. So uh, Ebola and Marburg viruses, for instance, uh, are present in fruit bats. We think that's the main reservoir in animals, and the fruit bats don't get ill. And there's just not that many people who are around fruit bats in Central Africa. The bats are in caves and they're in high density, but not that many people go into these places. Uh, but we find that if there's enough human contact with these animals, uh, some of these viruses are ready to go in humans and uh, are very infectious, and Ebola would be an example of that. Uh, there are other viruses that are very common in um, animals but uh, don't spread well in humans. So avian influenza is an example of that where a lot of birds have it. Uh, they have it in their GI tract and uh, if humans are right near the birds and have exposure to the birds, they can become infected. But these, these viruses are adapted to birds and they don't grow uh, well enough in humans to pass from human to human. So they don't really emerge uh, in, in a way that these cause widespread disease. They just get one person who's directly in contact with a bird. So you need contact plus you need a virus that can grow in humans. So in some cases, the virus is ready to go, and others, they have to adapt when they hit humans. So you're getting crossover and exposure that we don't know about. A human gets sick, we don't know why, but if it mutates in the human so that it's now able to grow, then that's when you get these epidemics or pandemics. Mm. So if someone uh, get, starts getting sick with a, an infection that we've never really seen before, and other people start getting sick around them with, this, with similar symptoms, um, what's the first thing we do to try and identify what's causing the disease? Well, most physicians are taking medical histories and one of those is exposure. So if you have an unusual looking presentation of infection, a good uh, provider or even infectious disease specialist will ask you questions about have you traveled, have you traveled outside the country, or do you have exposures to anything unusual? animals, birds, and so on. That's part of a, a very common medical history infectious disease people would ask. And, uh, you know, in the United States, if you've traveled to Western Africa and been in rural areas, and uh, that might be considered a risk factor, for instance. So that would change the, the thinking of a provider, whether this is just a conventional pathogen or something that might be more exotic. Um, I just heard a story last week, I was in an animal uh, infectious disease conference. I, I usually work on human diseases, but this was all animal people. And it was a very interesting talk about a guy who was sequencing unusual patients. And there was a very sick individual, uh, this is a human in an ICU, and said, oh yeah, and by the way, I'm a squirrel breeder. And who knew that people breed squirrels in their homes? And, and this person in Germany had 30 squirrels in his home. I was very ill and said, and by the way, two of my friends are squirrel breeders and they just died. So immediately this was a red flag that uh, squirrels are very common. We're all, we see them in the yard. We're not that far from them, but not that many people actually handle squirrels, right. share secretions with squirrels or get bit by squirrels. And so that was enough of a clue that these people 
were able to sequence the person's blood and found a new virus, a bornavirus that had never been in humans. So now we know one person has been infected with this and it came from these squirrels. So the, the virus was discovered because of this history of exposure to animals. Wow, so that's really an interesting story. Is, is it typically, from, so it's typically jumping from animals that would most of the this. most of the emerging infections that we've been uh, worried about lately have been coming from animals. So, uh, Nipah virus is in pigs in Malaysia and gets in contact with people, crosses over. Uh, Hendra virus in Australia uh, was in horses. So veterinarians who were around horses were getting infected. Uh, Ebola and Marburg come from fruit bats to people who. Um, uh, so, for instance, in some places in Africa, people hunt. People hunt wild animals for meat, and so the, some of these cases are when a bushmeat hunter will capture a primate or a bat and roast these and either sell it, so they're butchering the meat to sell it or they're cooking it, and they get infected and then they go spread it to other people. So a lot of these, um, a lot of these things are coming from uh, animals. Yeah. So I've heard a lot about Zika virus uh, lately. So. This is an emergent pathogen for me, at least. It's new for, for me as of the past couple years. So what is the Zika virus and why do we care about it? Well, Zika virus is from a family of viruses called flaviviruses. And um, there's a lot of these and people know about some of them already. So one would be dengue virus. Um, another would be West Nile virus, which sort of burst onto the scene uh, maybe a decade ago, uh, and we did not have that in the United States, and all of a sudden we had a, lots and lots of cases and a lot of difficulty with that. There's another virus, Japanese encephalitis virus, for which there's a traveler's vaccine we already have. So there are a lot of these related viruses that we knew about. Uh, and in, in my business, we were studying dengue, but we were looking at all of the other ones that were related mm -hmm. and guessing, well, if dengue can infect 400 million people a year, I bet these other viruses could do that if they were given the chance. So we were already working on West Nile and Japanese encephalitis virus. Yellow fever is another related virus. And Zika was a minor player. It had caused, it was discovered in 1947 in primates and had actually caused an outbreak in the Pacific in Yap, an island there, just a few years ago. And it seemed kind of exotic, but threatening enough because it's similar to dengue that we already had it on our list. We started working on it in hmm. 2015, just at a low level before the current outbreak. And uh, it seems to have moved from the Pacific into South America. And we don't fully understand all the factors, but virus may have changed a little bit. And uh, it got into an area where lots of mosquitoes, which is what transmits it. And it's just burned like wildfire through a lot of places in South America. And you know we even have cases in the US now. Right. So it'll be wherever the mosquitoes go. So how do the mosquitoes actually transmit the virus? Yeah, this is something interesting. So I'm not a mosquito expert, but I've learned a lot about it recently, just working with people who do this kind of work. So mosquitoes spend most of their life in a very small area. A lot of them will, will only go 50 feet maybe mm -hmm. in their entire life. Some of them can go as far as a mile, but they, they don't move across the country. So. Uh, what mosquitoes do is they bite someone who is infected and has a high level of virus in their blood. Um, the virus can actually um, replicate in mosquitoes. So in some of these diseases, the mosquito is just uh, re-injecting 
virus from blood, and in other cases the, the virus is replicating in the mosquito and is in the saliva of the mosquito, basically. And then they go 20, 30, 40 feet and find another person who's not infected and they bite and they transmit the disease. So you need lots of mosquitoes and you need an infected person near another infected person long enough to transmit that distance. So. Uh, in, in our country, we have air conditioning and screens everywhere, mm -hmm. and uh, so people in Florida don't necessarily spend a lot of time outside during mosquito season in crowds, and so that's what you need. And But in places like in Brazil, there were a lot of people who spent a lot of time outdoors, and it, it was sort of a fertile field for this to happen. So high density of people, and lots of mosquitoes, and then you get some people infected, and then, um, yeah, then, then it happened. Yeah. So when people get infected with the Zika virus, um, what happens? Well, they get inoculated with a small amount of virus. Uh, you, you probably get a little bit of virus replication in that site, and then it gets into the blood and it goes everywhere. And um, so once you have virus in your blood, almost all the tissues in your body could become susceptible, and now you have virus all over your body. Uh, and then your body starts figuring out something's going wrong and sends in the troops, which is your immune system. And the immune system is a double-edged sword. It, it starts clearing virus, but it also kills infected cells, which are the virus factories that are there, uh, which is good because you're, you're eliminating cells that are making virus, but you're killing yourself at the same time. You're killing mm -hmm. those cells. So your immune system causes damage in order to clean up the infection. So you have virus, causing problems and your immune system and both of those are going on at the same time and sometimes things can go awry so one condition there's a brain condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome and rarely that happens in Zika or you know after Zika it's kind of a complication so that's very severe a brain problem and then most concerning for Zika is if a woman is pregnant the virus infects the woman and then crosses the placenta into the fetus and can get all over the fetus, including in the brain, and causes damage to the developing brain. So you get a small brain, small head, which is yeah. microcephaly, but also just disease all over the fetus. So uh, an acute syndrome for most people, sort of like a flu-like syndrome with fever. Some people get brain damage, Guillain-Barre, and then the worst is uh, the microcephaly and pregnancy. Right, so if someone's sick, is there anything we can do to treat them? Right now, there's uh, really no approved treatment. So uh, we're just trying to keep people well hydrated and treat their fever and their pain and so on. And um, it's just called supportive treatment. So you just try to make them feel better, basically. Um, so there's no specific treatment uh, that we can offer for Zika right now. So what's our best defense then? How can we combat? Zika, and I guess this is really asking, how can we make a vaccine? Um, well, the best thing you can do Zika. right now is yeah. uh, to wear a DEET-containing uh, mosquito repellent okay. and not get bit. So I think avoiding mosquito bites when you're in a, um, a place that has Zika and a lot of mosquitoes is the number one thing to do. And even newborns can use mos DEET-containing um, mosquito repellents. Um, so long clothing, which is difficult because these are often hot areas and mosquito repellent. Um, beyond that, uh, we think as a public health measure, we probably need vaccines and treatments or preventions and treatments. So there are several 
experimental vaccines that have been developed very rapidly and those are already being tested. Uh, and then people who have millions of randomly collected chemicals and drugs in their freezers are testing these with robots to see mm. if any of these drugs would inhibit Zika in the lab to make a drug that you would take, like a pill. Uh, and then we are doing this sort of third kind of activity, which is develop um, antibodies. So we find people who were previously infected and have recovered, we get their cells out and we can actually get the antibodies out of them uh, that they made in their own body. And these are naturally occurring drugs, they're proteins, and we can make them in the lab and give them back to animals or people. So uh, vaccines, antiviral treatments, and antibodies to prevent or treat. Those are the things we're all trying to work on to develop. So are the systems in place uh, to develop something like this? Uh, I know you're someone who works on pathogens like Zika virus, and you have for a while. Um, but I, I'm wondering if I can get a sense of when something new like this really comes up, do we you know, flip the switch and everyone, all these three different types of strategies comes about and is one quicker than the other, more efficient than the other, more effective. Um, so what would be, I guess, um, the order of operations when, uh, when a new virus like this is discovered? Well, Zika's been a great example of probably how it should be done and it's the, the steps that need to be taken were done as fast as you can almost imagine them. So we've had sort of some practice at this. It was chikungunya that infected a million people in the Caribbean in one year or a couple of years ago. Then we had Ebola, which even had spread to the United States. So twice in the last couple of years, we've sort of had a mock, yeah. mock preparedness that was real. Uh, so this is really the third one, and it gets faster every time. So I think the first thing that happens is people take blood and just sequence it and find what is the virus, what's the sequence, post that publicly, and then everybody can start uh, distributing the virus so lots of research labs have it and can work with it or have the sequences and that was done extremely rapidly here. Then those of us who have platform technologies like ways to make a vaccine or ways to make an antibody or a drug, uh, everybody who thinks it can contribute, off, often everybody will jump in and try to use their their basic approach and just modify it to Zika. So mm -hmm. everyone who was working on dengue shifted immediately to try to you know, contribute to the Zika story. Um, and in some cases, there's already an approach that probably would work. So just killing Zika virus or inactivating it may be good enough to make a vaccine that could work and may be safe. So, just inactivating it like inactivated polio, which is the polio vaccine we get. Uh, inactivated flu is kind of a, an approach. So this is a, an approach that's been used before. So people say, what if we just inactivated Zika and tried that as a vaccine? Uh, and there's probably 10 or 12 other basic ways people make vaccine and everybody tried those. So two or three of those sort of conventional ways to make vaccines have been used for Zika and those are the ones that are already in yeah. the trials. Now, some pathogens, you can look at HIV, emerged probably from animals a long time ago, and we still don't have a vaccine. So the conventional approaches have not worked for HIV. So I think it depends on what the virus is. In some cases, it'll be easy, and we just use a, an approach we have. And in other cases, none of those will work, and we'll have to dream up something new. So Zika so far, 
looks like it's fairly easy to inactivate with antibodies we've made, also with vaccines that have been used in animals so far. They seem to work pretty well. So uh, the knowledge we have so far about Zika is, look, it might be a, a target that we really could have interventions for. Antibodies, we, get, we already have them. We're already developing them for clinical trials. Vaccines typically take a year, two, three. You would usually not be able to license a vaccine for typically five or 10 years. Mm. So if you look at what happened with Ebola, vaccines were developed, were, were in development, were progressed rapidly, went into clinical trials, and the outbreak was over a year later before the trials were executed. And so mm. a year is not enough time to mm. finish a vaccine and test it. But uh, So I guess this will lead into my last question uh, today, which is what is one thing that as a researcher in this field, you would do to improve or change uh, the process of um, identifying, um, studying, and treating uh, these emergent pathogens? Yeah, I think the, the main thing we need to work on, uh, particularly in our country, which is maybe the leading research environment in terms of funding, uh, we need to follow through when we start these things. So. Um, as an example, Ebola was in the news every night for months because of the outbreak in cases in the United States. And a lot of emergent funding was directed toward Ebola and a lot of us started working on Ebola and a lot of people put a lot of effort into it. And when the outbreak uh, ended because of public health measures, not because of any drugs or vaccines, people just contained it with public health measures, the public lost interest, mm -hmm. Congress lost interest, and those of us who had started working were sort of left with a, a, all of a sudden, you know, a high level of interest went to very little interest. And then when Zika occurred, um, money was shifted from Ebola research to Zika because now all the news is about Zika and no, no question we should respond to Zika. But now we're abandoning Ebola right. research in order to shift to Zika. But we haven't finished the job with Ebola. We, we made tremendous rapid progress, but we just needed probably two to five more years to solidify the vaccine testing and all this sort of thing. And I think the failure to follow through um, hurts us because it's over now, but almost certainly there'll be another outbreak with Ebola or Marburg and one of these filoviruses. And then we'll look back and say, why don't we finish the job? Yeah. Uh, and so this, this short attention span from the public and Congress and even the scientific community, I, I think is not serving us well. I think we need to finish when we've made good progress, when we have momentum, finish these things. And I, I can see it happening with Zika. If two years from now, they're not a big outbreak in the United States and mm -hmm. the South America, everyone's infected and now immune and the outbreak gets contained, there'll be little interest, and yet right now everybody wants to do everything possible. So yeah. that's a challenge. Three years from now, will we finish the Zika job? Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, attention spans have been getting shorter <laughs> in time. Exactly. I hope there's something we can do to expand them. <laughs> yeah. So for those of us who live and die on federal funding for things, uh, I've told my team, okay, we just lived through chikungunya news cycle, Ebola, Zika's gonna, you know, play. It, it'd be good if we could predict the next thing, get ahead of that curve, have it ready when the outbreak occurs, yeah. and, and be a year or two ahead. And so that's what we're, I mean, we're, we're doing Zika research full force, no question about that, but 
at a, as a trickle, we have about 50 pathogens going. We're placing bets on what's the next really? big thing. Yeah, so we have a list that we're going around finding rare individuals who've had these things that we can study and get antibodies ready. So Mayorovirus, Rift Valley Fever in East Africa. Um, there's just a whole list of things that cross over into humans that we think are plausible the next big thing, and we're already working on them. Yeah, so, yeah. wow. Well, uh, I guess it's, from a research perspective, it's fun to work on that stuff and take bets, but of course we hope that none of those <laughs> actually materializes. We, we hope they don't, but, but we're they, figuring yeah. one of the 50, has, there's a right. very good chance we're gonna see something new. So, right. um, yeah, it's, it's fun and challenging, and uh, I think important. I think it's not just us, other people uh, have been thinking about are there predictive models, are there computation models, is there surveillance we could do in animals yeah. that would tell us earlier on, uh, Google's very interested in this, could you use neural networks with search terms and see uh, emerging problems before scientists even know about it because hmm. the public has identified something unusual. So a lot of people are thinking about predictive models and wow, that'd be great if we knew sort of before yeah. it happened or the first 10 people when it happens and respond to it rather than waiting to a couple hundred thousand people are involved. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. All right, well, that's all the time we have for today. So thank you so much for speaking with me, Dr. Crow. Yeah, thanks for having me.